Hi, everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay. And for those of you that are new to our show, we are about sound information, not just sound bites. So we are True Talk Radio. We usually take about an hour of your time. You can listen whenever. And um, today we are going to be focusing on Dementia Alliance International with their CEO, Kate Swafford. And with our show, we have all kinds of people listening and as guests. So people with MCI or a form of dementia, family and friend, care partners, all kinds of businesses that are caring or providing services, products, or tools, researchers, educational people, support services, advocates, entertainment, all kinds of things that help us live better with dementia. And I I know how frustrating it is right now. Um, Dementia is a difficult disease to begin with. And now we're adding in uh, the COVID-19 and everything is really in turmoil. And I I totally understand and appreciate that. My my own mom had dementia for 30 years. And I can't even imagine adding this on top of that. But that's where we are today, and that's why we want to help lift you up. We want to help you stay connected. And actually, that's why I started Alzheimer's Speaks, is I wanted to connect people to services, products, and tools that they can choose what's going to work for them. And I want to thank all of you, too, because you see your likes, your clicks, and shares have really made a difference. You have made us an international brand, and I can't thank you enough, because again, our goal here is to raise everyone's voices, get them information using different platforms from the radio and video to the blog and website and social media. It's, it's critical we, we help people stay connected, especially during this time. One of the ways you can do that is go to memorycafedirectory.com. That's memorycafedirectory.com. There you can find information on over 900 memory cafes. Now, most of them are shutting down. Uh, Mine in Roseville, Minnesota is um, now going to be virtual and we invite anybody to join us there. So check that out. I know Dave's in the process of working with the memory cafes to be able to get people connected. And so you always want to check before you venture out that they are going to be open and most likely they are not no matter where they are in the country. So I'd like to give a shout out to Keith Gallus. Keith wrote this great book called Parental Dementia, and it answers all the questions that families have, you know, all those tough things once diagnosis happens. See, he's an executive director and has 20 years experience in the field. So he gets it. He's broken his book down by chapter, and each chapter covers one of those significant questions that most families go through. Now, you can get his book um, online through Amazon, Walmart, Barnes & Noble, or you can go to his uh, site directly and save $5.99 by using the code LORI, L-O-R-I. 
So check out parentaldementia.com. I think you will really enjoy the book and find it useful. And if not for yourself, it makes a great gift for family or friends who are struggling. So many times we don't know what to do and, and giving them a resource can be one of those times you can help them along. Um, I also want to give a shout out to our friends at the film Determined. Um, it's a documentary film that tells the story of three women who have become uncommon activists and it follows their family history with Alzheimer's disease. And they're um, looking for some donations. They're trying to get into a lot of film festivals and things so they could use your help. And you can go to their website, learn more about the film at documentaries.org. That's documentaries.org forward slash will dash I dash B E dash next. Will dash I dash B E dash next. And last, I just want to say everyone's asking, what's happening with all your presentations, Lori? Well, needless to say, they've been canceled. <laughs> and people are focusing on what they need to focus. I'm hoping that people will change and go virtual. And many are looking at rescheduling in person. Um, but with the time frame that this is being, I, I have a feeling it might take a little bit longer and we'll probably be seeing more virtual training going on. So just hang tight and, um, and we'll be with you soon. So let me introduce you to Kate Swapper. She is the current chair and CEO and co-founding member of Dementia Alliance International. She got her Master's of Science in Dementia Care in 2014 and has a Bachelor of Psychology um, and has a graduate diploma in grief counseling as well and is a retired nurse. She is a published academic, an author, and a disability rights activist. So welcome, Kate. How are you doing today? Thanks so much for having me, Laurie. I'm, I'm okay, uh, not, not affected by the coronavirus, which is good. Um, so, it's, you know, thanks so much for having me. It's terrific to be here. Well, I'm excited to have you. I'm in actually self-isolation right now because I was traveling last week. Um, but, I, you know, I feel fine and, and hopefully I will be fine. But I want to make sure that I'm, you know, protecting others as well as myself at this point and trying to follow all the, the changing rules of, of what's transpiring out there. Um, Kate, I always ask everybody who is on the show how they've been touched by dementia. Do you mind giving a little background of, of yourself? No, not at all, Laurie. Um, uh, ironically, I uh, worked as a nurse in Adelaide, where I live, Adelaide's first dedicated dementia unit back in the late 70s. Um, and then uh, about 10 or so years ago, um, I had so over a period of a couple of years, three um, close either family members or very close friends who I was legal guardian for, um, all who had dementia, uh, one younger friend uh, who went into a nursing home aged 54, um, and then my father-in-law with Lewy body dementia and uh, another very close family friend with Parkinson's and Alzheimer's dementia. So I've been impacted both as a nurse and also as a family um, member or care partner. And then myself was diagnosed with younger onset dementia uh, coming up for 12 years ago when I was 49. 
so I've kind of got an insider's view uh, and, uh, you know, care partner's view and then, um, you know, ironically, a nurse's view of looking after people in late stage dementia. But I certainly didn't expect at my age to get dementia. And because the symptoms weren't anything like what I perceived dementia to be, and I think there's still a misperception that dementia's only, you know, profound memory loss and perhaps confusion and not knowing people. Um, I didn't have any of those symptoms to start with. So uh, when I started getting help um, or getting tested, I didn't realise um, that I was going to be uh, told I had dementia. So it's kind of an interesting um, insight into dementia. Um, it's certainly given me other ways of thinking about it and experiencing it. Well, that's for sure. You definitely have the broad gamut there. I'd like to know a, a little bit before we get started on a, my other line of questioning and the work that you're doing over in Australia, how has the coronavirus affected you or, or hasn't it? Well, I think it, the coronavirus has affected us. I mean, you can't not know about it. The news feeds are just you know, hourly, if not more often than that. And, you know, I woke up this morning to one newsletter that wasn't about the coronavirus, one of about 20. So everyone's sending out news updates almost every day. Um, but I, I think as a person diagnosed with dementia and there's all this talk around the world about social distancing and, and people being isolated and having to use online formats such as Zoom, um, I think there's a lot of people around the world who would say they've been experiencing social distancing and isolation ever since their diagnosis. So to them, it's not such a new thing. Um, I think there's a lot of anxiety and stress, though. For example, um, you know, just simple things like going shopping. A lot of the shops here have been completely, you know, almost bought out from basic supplies where, you know, we're not going to run out of toilet paper in Australia. We've got people who produce it here. Um, but the impact on care partners and families, you know, of, uh, you know, there's such a, a big family, if you like, of people um, impacted by dementia in some way, whether they're people with dementia or families um, who have someone in the, you know, someone they love with dementia, certainly people in nursing homes, um, their loved ones are pretty distressed about the fact that, you know, and you said in America that nursing homes have all been shut down. Well, you know, if my father-in-law was in a nursing home, I'd be pretty worried I may never see him again or he may die alone without me or that the next time I did see him, he may not remember me. Um, so I think it's a really stressful time for um, families of dementia, people with dementia as well. Yeah, I agree. I love the comment you made about uh, people with dementia already experiencing that social isolation once they get diagnosed. And so I, and I really agree with you. I think there are many are way ahead of the curve because they've been using these Zoom recordings and connecting yeah. people all over the world and creating a new network of peers. And, yeah, and so I do think there is a lot to learn. I remember in the beginning, even with the like Facebook groups and things like that, um, a lot of professionals I would hear would just kind of poo poo, well, that's not a real relationship. And I'm like, these relationships are much deeper because they're talking yeah. about real things. They're not talking about sports. They're not talking about the weather. They are talking about all of life. And they are Absolutely. all being very vulnerable and yet very accepting of one another and helping one another adjust through yeah. all the changes. And so, um, yeah, I think that that's a really, uh, really positive um, 
piece that you added there that I hadn't had thought through that far. I think it was probably three quarters of the way there, but I think that uh, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and if if a person yep. with dementia can maneuver these changes through isolation, and yeah. and they have the rest of the world should be able to do this too. You know? Yeah, I mean, I've been doing it for seven years almost. Initially, Google Chats, and then, I mean, we've been using Zoom uh, since before we actually f officially launched DAI. Um, but it's actually my lifeline, Zoom. And, and, you know, for someone with young onset dementia, um, it's no disrespect to my friends, but all of the people my age, all of my friends are still working. So they can't just drop drop their you know daily life and and come visit me every day of the week because most younger people are working. Um, so you know I'd be lost without Zoom. Yeah, well, and it's a it's a great way for people now who you know dementia or not um, to utilize Zoom and and other video conferencing or just picking up the phone and connecting with people. You know, I think it's a real important time to be able to reach out. I just uh, reached out to uh, a group of um, high school buddies, and we're on. Uh, we have a Facebook group, and I'm like, "Hey, we haven't gotten together for a long time. You know, let's each grab a beer or a glass of wine and have a meal in front of us, and just like we would live, except it'll be virtual." We call that tele dining. Yeah, tele dining. Okay, I like that. Yeah, because it's, uh, there's a lot of people that are living alone. You know, I don't live alone, so I'm lucky there. But if, you know, that could really probably drive you crazy um, if you didn't yeah, have to, to occupy you. But there's always spring cleaning and, I, and there's always, I think, a list we could make of things to do. And there's lots of choices that we have um, to be able to utilize this time best possible way so well let's let's get into your work and what you're doing because you're doing some fabulous work and you've really become this massive activist for human rights and disability rights how how did that happen was it because of your diagnosis um it absolutely was because of my diagnosis laurie i mean when i got diagnosed um my doctor didn't refer me to um, Alzheimer's Australia, now known as Dementia Australia. Um, but that, you know, that's changed since I got diagnosed. Most people do get referred um, to the, you know, local or national advocacy group. Uh, but basically, I was advised by everyone around me from the advocacy organisation to healthcare providers, to aged care providers, to give up work um, to, I was at university at the time, to give up university because that would be too stressful for, for someone with dementia, um, to get my end of life affairs in order. And in fact, at, at age 49, advised to start going to respite daycare a day a month to get used to it in an aged care facility. Now, I, you know, I was spinning really, um, being told I had young onset dementia, I, I mean, as I said earlier, I, I was a nurse, but I was also under the misperception that only, you know, older persons get dementia, and that's absolutely not true. Um, but it was really when uh, I, I at university, um, they advised me to go to the disability support team, and they set me up with a disability advisor. They did an assessment. I had to get a letter from my doctor. Um, confirming my diagnosis and outlying the various symptoms and then what those sim sim symptoms equated to in terms of disabilities. 
Um, and they then set me up with a disability access plan to allow me to continue to study. So that was quite a, a large um, turning point for me to see dementia as a disability. Nobody had told me that the symptoms were acquired disabilities. And then the other thing that, that perhaps changed the way I decided to deal with dementia was I put my nurse's hat back on and realised that if I had a stroke or, say, a brain injury from a car accident, I would have been provided with rehabilitation and supported to go back to work in whatever capacity I was able to with reasonable adjustments. Yet nobody in the health sector ever told me of my rights as a disabled person. They didn't tell me that the symptoms were disabilities um, and they didn't support me to live. They basically supported me to go home and die. And that's just not good enough. Yeah, my mom had dementia for 30 years. And, you know, the first 10 years she was misdiagnosed and told it was her hormones. And then when they finally tested her, um thoroughly they said oh she's got the mentality of a three-year-old don't let her out of your sight and we're like oh great living at, yeah. the, at the lake at the end of a peninsula this is wonderful you know and and yet with her um you know there was like you said there was no information given to her no connections yeah. at all no support and I was shocked I mean I was I was truly shocked and so that's really why I started Alzheimer's Speaks was because I thought there's got to be other people out there like us. There's yes. got to be more resources. And, and I just felt this need to raise everyone's voice because I don't have to agree with everyone's opinion, but I want, I want to know what it is. Absolutely. You know? And Absolutely. there's so, information to live well. Yeah. There's so much out there and I'm, I'm still disappointed to this day that there is not a comprehensive resource directory. To me, that's just asinine. There's so much information, but it's so much work for for people, you know, who are diagnosed and family to, yeah. to figure out what's what there. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Dementia Alliance International? I know you're a co-founder. How did that come to be? Um, I guess that's a long story, and I probably don't know all of the story, um, partly because I live in Australia and I only learned last year that the Americans the co-founding Americans used to laugh at this Aussie's funny accent and the funny words I used to say um, but I met I went to London in 2012 my husband and I went to the ADI conference in London I can't remember whether it was February or March um, and there was quite a large group of people with dementia in attendance including um Richard Taylor from the US uh, and um, Helga Rara from Germany and, you know, a large group of others. Uh, Dr. Jennifer Butte, I think, was there. Um, and we started, we had a meeting with ADI and we started talking about um, setting up an, a global group of people with dementia. And um, apparently Richard Taylor had been in discussions with ADI for that to happen for many years before I got to know him well. And um, they they seemed positive about um, supporting us financially to do that and nothing happened. So in 2013, uh, you know, a group of us formed the, the original, you know, the final eight co-founders and we um, decided to set up DAI, you know, self-funding it. 
um, and we launched on the 1st of January 2014. Um, and we did that because nobody else was doing it for us. Uh, we weren't getting really any services, not adequate services from anyone anywhere. And the more people we talked to in more countries, we realised it wasn't just our country where people were being told to give up life and go home and die and there's nothing we can do. It was every country. Um, and really, we started providing peer-to-peer -peer support, actually before DAI started officially, um, through uh, using Zoom platform. Um, and in many cases, we still provide more free services than most other advocacy organisations provide for people with dementia. So if you do a search of, of the advocacy organisations around the world, you'll find a lot of support and services for, for example, care partners and families, but very few for people with dementia. So we went, well, nobody's doing it for us, we'll do it ourselves. Um, and all these years later, we're still going. Well, and it was so needed. I mean, you guys are the true experts. You know what it looks like, what it feels like, you know, how people react to it, what services you need. And to me, I always felt that it was asinine that we weren't engaging you. Um, and again, that's one thing that, you know, Alzheimer's Speaks tries to do too, is to raise everyone's voice because yeah. you guys are the true experts. I know here in America, we have a Dementia Action Alliance yeah. Um, that, you know, is trying to do some things as well <clears throat> and raise those voices. But, um, and I had the opportunity to uh, work and meet with uh, Richard Taylor and, um, you know, he, he made such great strides and it's so nice to see what you guys have, have pulled together. And for those of you listening that don't know what ADI is, that's Alzheimer's Disease International. So that that's a group that, you know, includes all of the Alzheimer's associations around the world. And so it's nice to see that they're backing you now and, um, and helping promote this because, you know, in my belief is your type of resource is the most critical type of resource that's needed for families. And, you know, people keep saying, you know, the numbers are going to grow and families need support. And it's like, okay, so then why aren't we doing more of this? People need to have peers. They need to feel part of their world still. And they need to feel hopeful. I mean, if we would have gone back as a family and just waited for my mom to die for 30 years, we would have been looking at our watch going, well, my goodness, come on, you know? <laughs> Exactly. And, and what an awful way to live life. Yeah. There's just, there's so much more. And, you know, I have to, I just have to add this in that, you know, people are amazed that my mom's journey lasted 30 years. And I even had doctors tell me, well, she can't have it. You can't live that long. We had her brain autopsied. And one of the, the top neurologists here looked the um, autopsy. And I said, can you just explain this to me? You know, and it showed little bit of Louie body, little bit of Parkinson, <clears throat> but he said, oh my gosh, he's like, I have never, never seen a brain this atrophied. And then he apologized. And I said, no, you don't need to apologize. He said, well, I shouldn't have said it like that. He's like, but I, I mean, he was just generally surprised. And he said, but this is what we should expect to see, yeah. Yeah. you know, but you know, there's been so many people who have had this disease that weren't diagnosed back in the day or can't afford to do the autopsy, which that should just, you know, be a given. If a person is willing to do that, that should just be, a family shouldn't have to pay for that. That should be in our trials. 
if we're Absolutely. really going to make headway as far as I'm concerned. Um, so why don't we talk about the importance of the symptoms of dementia and as they relate to an actual disability? Yeah, so I've been advocating for this for a long time and, and you know, really based on my personal experience of being supported through my university automatically um, and yet not being supported by the health sector. And I, you know, I still struggle that this is such an issue for the health sector. But if we manage the symptoms of dementia uh, and the World Health Organization very clearly states on their website that dementia is a major cause of disability and dependence in older persons. Um, as we manage them as cognitive and there are other disabilities that we get, um, rather than only equating dementia to memory loss, um, which, which actually supports the myths and stigma that dementia is only memory loss. So when a person with dementia remembers something, people will say, oh, so you haven't got dementia, you remembered that. Um, so it's not only changes to memory, it's changes, uh, we have uh, aphasia and other language and communication disabilities and a lot of people who get primary progressive aphasia um, my first symptom, for example, was acquired dyslexia. I hadn't had dyslexia as a kid, but um, that was one of the first symptoms for me. Um, I, people have spatial um, awareness changes, depth perception changes, which is uh, why things like falling become an issue um, for many of us. Sensory changes to taste and smell and a lot of other um, disabilities. So if we can equate all of those to a disability then if we go into the disability sector it's really easy to they find it really easy to support us um, but you know there's been a conversation as well uh, and it was really difficult for me to accept another d label so you know d for dementia there's a lot of stigma still with dementia but d with disability there's also stigma for disability um, and perhaps more so for people with invisible disabilities, because a lot of our disabilities aren't overly visible and, and unless you spend a lot of time with us or until we get to late stage. But I found it really difficult to put on another kind of D label. Um, but once I did, um, it changed my thinking to one of rights, both human and legal rights. So, you know, there were an estimated now 52 million people living with dementia and a new diagnosis Somewhere in the world, three every 3.2 seconds, and dementia is the fifth leading cause of death globally. Um, and, you know, many people don't understand that it is a terminal illness. But whilst it might be a progressive and chronic neurodegenerative disorder, um, it causes disability. And so we have rights to be supported to live with dementia. And, and in 2019 the United Nations um, report of the Special Rapporteur on the rights of persons with disabilities identified human rights concerns faced by not just people with disabilities who are ageing, and old, but older persons who acquire disability, and, all, and that includes, of course, all persons with dementia. Um, so, you know, I was really pleased to be able to provide feedback on that report to ensure that people with dementia were included. Um, but, you know, most importantly reframing dementia as a disability reinforces the rights of people with dementia as described in the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. These are the standards that 
every one of us is entitled to. Um, and, you know, we're in, all entitled to the highest attainable standard of universal health coverage, not just with respect to getting a diagnosis and, you know, your mum not getting a diagnosis for 10 years is, is you know, terrible. Um, but that, I still hear that those stories that people are taking three, five, seven years to get a diagnosis. But also I'm hearing a lot of stories still that doctors choose not to disclose a diagnosis of dementia to people with dementia. And I've had that happen in my own family. Um, so, and then people are being told just to go home and get ready to die. That's a complete breach of our rights. So, you know, once we see dementia as a disability and we move our approach away from the medical model of care to one based on a social and disability pathway of support, then we're more likely to have people who are less objects of charity um, and who um, have the same right to not just disability support, but to full health care, including rehabilitation. I know that I would have been given rehab after a stroke. Why aren't we providing people with rehab? Not, it's not a cure, but it does support a higher quality of life and independence for longer. So we could really change both the human cost of dementia and the economic cost of dementia for not just families but for governments um, if we move to an approach for dementia that encourages independence and living our lives instead of giving up and going home and becoming dependent very quickly. Sorry, that's a big mouthful. There's a lot to say about it. No, I, I think what you said is great. I know over here there was a, oh, and I can't think of his last name, um, Cameron... I don't know, he's on YouTube, but he does a video called, you know, what if Alzheimer's disease was termed Alzheimer's syndrome, you mm -hmm. know, and he was talking and he was kind of relating it to like Down syndrome and things like that, that we've done like with Special Olympics and we've really lifted them and, you know, tried to, tried to raise them um, in the world and individually and empowering them. And he's like, you know, just one little word can make such a big difference in terms of how we perceive things. And, you know, you also touched on, you know, the, the, um, the invisible disease. And I'm sure you've gotten this a lot because people watch this and go, oh, she doesn't have it. Yeah. How could she talk like that? How could she, how could she be so eloquent? And, and, uh, you know, no, no, that's not possible. But people just don't understand the, the levels of the disease and how it's fluid. And, you know, a, a lot of people have told me, and I don't know if this happens with you, but when they're on stage or doing an interview, you know, everything just kind of comes together for them most of the time. And, and they get this energy. And then afterwards, they're kind of exhausted because that was a lot, a lot of work. Yeah, you know, people don't understand the paddling that's going on underneath to actually do anything. Um, and, and I remember Richard Taylor showing me his, um, you know, well-used letter. He had a letter. He got sick of people telling him he couldn't possibly have dementia. And he had, a, had his specialist write him a letter confirming his diagnosis. And it was folded up in his wallet and he used to bring it out and show it to people. And he even got accused of, of, of forging the letter. So, 
you know, it happens to, you know, a friend of mine in Australia um, used to put up on, when she did a lot of, used to do a lot of presenting, and she used to put up what she called a credit, credit, slow down, credibility slide, which was pictures of her brain scans. And she had, you know, people like academics and neurologists accuse her of stealing somebody else's brain scans. You just go, you know, this perception of late stage, no capacity is so prevalent, even in the health sector. It, it really, really is. And, and that's the shocking part because you, we all think they know, they understand, you know, they're, they're supposed to be the experts, but that isn't the case. There's a lot of education that needs to be happening there. And then on top of, you know, struggling with things, now you're being bullied by people, you know, and having to prove yourself. No, here, I, this is my, I mean, how would anyone feel to have to, you know, show a paper to justify who they are? I mean, that is, that it, people don't understand how demeaning that is. Very cruel. It's, yeah, it's, it's horrible. And I mean, and I have witnessed some horrible bullying online and in person with people with dementia and the attacks that, that um, many of you as activists and advocates have to put up with and deal with and I I just um, man I can't thank you enough for your strength and your courage because a lot of people wouldn't do that and and you are all making such a, a significant difference in the world and getting people to understand I mean people still don't think kids can get dementia. Our youngest member for DAR he was 18 when he was diagnosed and then our oldest members um, are in their 90s, living in nursing homes. So, you know, it's a broad spectrum. There's a lot of different ages. And, uh, you know, it's less than 10% of people get young onset dementia. Um, I'm not sure if you call it young onset in America, but we call it young onset here for anyone under the age of 65 um, mm -hmm. because anyone can be in the early stages, whether you're 80 or 40. Yeah, and, well, and that's the whole thing people don't understand either. You know, and then you, you roll in the MCI, you know, the mild cognitive impairment. And I, it still makes me laugh when they came out with that because, uh, you know, I've been, I've been doing this about 10 years. Um, and people that had Alzheimer's diagnosis, you know, were now switched over to MCI. Yeah. And they would say, there's nothing mild about this. None of my symptoms have changed. You know, I haven't improved. If we haven't progressed as expected. Yeah. And so there was a lot of anger over that. You know, it's like, would they talk to somebody about some of these titles, <laughs> you know, in these categories before they come up with them? Uh, and I just don't think people realize the impact that that has. What, you know, we've, we've talked a little bit about the stigma and, and discrimination. Why do you think it's so prevalent and, and how do we get around it? Um, I think that uh, the stigma probably, I don't know, it's really complicated um, and uh, I think it's because we, as a civil society and as a healthcare sector, have viewed dementia as kind of late stage, no capacity or minimal capacity. Um, everything has been very paternalistic and 
hasn't supported people to maintain independence or social integration and participation in life, you know, in your community. Um, these welfare approaches have traditionally focused on providing institutional care, for example, for people with disabilities and, and then people with dementia, um, which keeps everyone in a state of dependency rather than supporting them and enabling people to participate in society. So, you know, if we sort of translate that into everyday life, everyone thinks we're going to need to end up in a locked unit in a nursing home with a lot more support for dementia symptoms as disabilities. Um, we, you know, maybe we can move away from the stigma, but, you know, some of the other things are traditionally people have been making decisions about us without us forever. And, I, you know, it really frustrates me that continues to happen today, no matter how loud we speak up as a global community of people with dementia demanding Article 19 of the CRPD, which is inclusion, we're still being excluded systematically around the world. You know, we should not have now to be calling out conference organisers to say, hey, why haven't you got people with dementia on the programme? Why are we still doing that? You know, I've been saying that for 10 or 12 years. Christine Bryden was saying it for 25 years. She gave up saying it because she's sick of saying the same thing. I'm kind of sick of saying the same thing too. And I've, I think it's, I've been challenging speakers without dementia for about five years now. If they get invited to be a keynote speaker on a conference program, I've asked many of my friends who are speakers, um, say, if, please ask the organiser, is there a person with dementia on the program? And if there isn't, say that you'll only be a speaker as long as they invite somebody with dementia at the same time haven't had anybody take me up on that yet so it's, it's still only people with dementia basically calling organizations out and that's not good enough yeah i um i i push for that pretty hard over here yeah i, I wish i wish we had you in australia then because it's still not happening here yeah uh, you know the other thing that i find uh, and it's I can't find very much in, in the literature on it and it's part of what I'm um, trying to study. But I think there's a massive dose of economic stigma as well. So before I had dementia, um, I could get a job. People were willing to pay me for my time and my expertise. And since dementia, nobody wants to pay me for my time or expertise. And well, why is that? But that's another thing. I, I, had, I was just jotting myself down a note. Um, that is one of the other things that I really push for is you guys should be paid. Now, some people don't want to get paid because they could. Yeah, I understand some that. Of yeah. their friends, but give them the opportunity because maybe they yeah. would like that money donated someplace else. Maybe they'd exactly. be willing to speak for free and maybe you could get, uh, you know, I, get another person. You yeah, know, I've um, been invited keynote speaker at, at conferences and, and I've asked the organizers for a speaker's fee and been told, no speakers are being paid. We don't have any money for any speakers. And then the other speakers tell me they've all been paid. And you go, how can that be? Yeah, there are a lot of conferences nowadays that um, aren't paying people mm. and because there's so many people jumping into the industry. Now, that doesn't yeah. mean they're going to be good speakers. But No, no, I know. But people are, I think, are overwhelmed. 
and they're, they're plug-it-in slots. And mm -hmm. to me, I think you really have to have a good, passionate speaker, not one that's going to put people to sleep, but really engage and get them their thoughts provoked. And when they walk out that door, they're energized and they want to share. I mean, to yeah. me, that's w what we need. And that's personally what I try to deliver. I call it emotional-based training. I get people laughing and crying yeah. with, with stories. And I, I have had, um, I can honestly say every time I have spoken, and I usually will highlight people if they are not willing to have them, but I always make sure I get their voices in there and mm -hmm. pictures of them. And when I am lucky enough to um, be able to convince um, a, a planner to have people with dementia speak, the response is incredible. Yeah, it is. I mean, yeah. they walk out saying, this changed my whole perspective. When I first started speaking, I was speaking sometimes with educators, you know, with groups of nurses or, you know, medical students and, and um uh, some of the academic speakers started to say to me, we, we're going to always have a person with dementia start the session because that opens up the participant or the delegate's heart and then we can come in with the training. And I think we really need to get to people's hearts and having real stories from people actually living with dementia or supporting someone with dementia, you know, like your story of your mum, that gets to people's hearts and, and that then gives them the impetus to want to change. I agree. One of, one of the things that um, I did when I did a um, dementia intensive and they said, okay, well, you know, we're, I said, I want somebody with dementia, you know, I want to interview them and, you know, have this conversation. I really want to get to the root of things, you know, and have a real vulnerable conversation, a really honest one. And they're like, okay, we're going to give you this person. And um, she always talks about this. She's a wonderful speaker. We have her every year. And I said, okay, well, that's fine. But I don't want her talking about what she's talked about for the last five years. Exactly. You want something new. I, I, don't, I don't want people clapping out of respect because she's got dementia. I want people clapping because they got something new and it was valued and they respect her. Yeah. And so I, I called this woman and, um, and I asked her, you know, I said, this is what I'd like to discuss. And she's like, oh, no, I, this is what I always talk about. And I just said, um, Kate, I understand that and I, and I respect that. I said, but I want you, if you will do this for me just over the weekend, I said, I want you to take notice of all of your senses and how they've changed. Oh, they haven't changed. I said, Kay, I, 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 will, I will respect that if that's what you come back to me yeah. with, but are you willing to do that? And she did. And she's like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. I had no idea how much, it, because those changes come over a slow period of time. Mm. And we had the most magnificent conversation and we only were able to talk in this intensive for 20 minutes. We had people that had to go to the bathroom that wouldn't leave. And they yeah. said, they said, we could have listened to that all day. We have never learned so much in such a short period of time. Mm -hmm. And they wanted more of it. And I think the belief is sometimes with event planners, 
um, that they they worry about, well, if they're okay today, but what if they're having a bad day that day? Well, you know, we can do things to, to yeah. make sure that we're okay. We could do a dry run on Zoom and have a backup exactly for a live presentation i mean there are ways to preserve those conversations and make sure that it's it's meaty and it's meaningful and mm. um you know i think that that's critical and i think it's uh, like i said I, I get upset when people aren't paid or co at least compensated for their travel and stuff it's yeah. like yeah. you know uh, i it just doesn't make sense to me i i think there's um a huge need. I do see that curve in the U.S. changing. Yeah, I think it's slowly changing. Yeah, but very slowly. Yep. And um, you know, we just have to we just have to keep at it. You know, yeah. and it's, it's interesting. You know, I, what I've experienced in the last five years is is I've started to be invited to speak outside of the kind of pure dementia space in terms of conferences or meetings. So, you know, in, in cognitive impairment or um, protection of people with cognitive disabilities, you know, in a completely different environment to a dementia conference. I never experienced any stigma or discrimination outside of the space. So I just think that there's this embedded paternalistic view of people with dementia still, and it's going to take decades for that to change. I mean, how long did it take the disability community to change just their language that was being used about, you know, if you look back in a, an old dictionary, and I've got some old dictionaries, the synonyms used for disability were absolutely awful. And, you know, many of the expressions used about people with dementia are currently um, quite offensive, but, you know, even changing language is dis difficult. So changing attitudes, changing practice, changing anything is it's hard work, you know. Well, and like you said, it, it you, we have to get it kind of from the head to the heart. And so yeah, uh, like when I, when I speak, I talk about words matter. And then I explain why these words, I mean, think if you were called these words, you know, and, and think of the unconscious piece, you know, like even with the word mm -hmm. caregiver, as you well know, people are using care partner and care companion yeah. because people are wondering, A, why don't people associate themselves as even being a caregiver because they're a, a wife or a husband or a son or a daughter or a friend. Yeah. I, mean, and you know, I was very hot on the care partner term for years and my husband hated being called a carer. Yeah. So in 2012, I nicknamed him my bub or my backup brain. And if you think of the person supporting you, you know, if they can think of being the uh, hard drive on your, on your computer disk and they're the backup, so they only come out and help when they're asked, unless it's dangerous. Other than that, they, you know, my husband waits to be asked to help um, rather than taking over. Whereas initially, as a carer, he was advised that he'd soon have to take over. And that actually disabled pe disables people further. So, yeah, we need to be, you know, a care partner or, a, you know, if, if you're travelling with someone, a travel companion or a friend, yep. not a carer them of their roles and it strips us of our role. Well, and, and what people don't understand too is that it sets them up to give up their relationship because they're told it's over, you know, nothing's ever going to be the yeah. same. And what I found on my journey with my mom, and like I said, that her 30 year journey that I was blessed to be with her on was probably the biggest gift I'll ever get in my life because mm. it made me 
a better person. It made me look at the world very differently. And it also allowed me to learn to, I mean, we talk about unconditional love, you know, mm -hmm. and I, I didn't really know what that was till I had a child. And then yeah, I thought, yeah, exactly. yeah. I mean, even when I got married, it wasn't, it, it, it was different when I had a child, unconditional love. There's so many levels to unconditional love. And as she, yeah. as she progressed in the disease, we became so connected. I mean, it really truly was on a spiritual level. I can't even put into words, mm -hmm. but there were so many levels to our relationship and ways we would communicate that I wasn't paying attention to in our fast paced life. And it, and what I found was it was all the little teeny things yeah absolutely that melt my heart and to this day i can go on my youtube channel and i can watch a picture of my mom uh singing along with a music therapist in her end stage just half the time she'd fall asleep then she'd wake back up and her hands would be going yeah. and i can be having the worst day of my life and i watch that and everything is okay yeah yeah it reminds me of a, a, a true story when my father-in-law was in sort of the later stages with his Lewy body dementia in a nursing home and uh, we'd been visiting we used to visit nearly every day uh, sometimes more often um, and my young friend was also in the same nursing home so you know we could visit them both at the same time and we were driving home one day and my husband was really upset he said why is it when you visit dad his face lights up and he talks to you and when I'm there he just says nothing and you know this is a hard conversation to have and I said to him well you speak for him he takes longer to find his words you need to just sit back and give him the time that he needs to find his words and so he practiced doing that in the last few months of their his life and you know their relationship blossomed again because my husband was sitting back and listening and letting dad talk in the only way he could by then, which was took a long time to get words out. So you have to be really patient. And if you are, there's such a gift in that because your, your relationships enriched so much. Well, it really is. I also found um, with my mom as she progressed, she was the safest place for me to go. Yeah, he didn't judge me anymore. Yeah, exactly. Was no judgment, and it was like, oh my gosh, we we rarely get that in mm. this world, mm. or people forgetting how how lovely it is just to sit next to somebody in silence and just be in their presence. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's you know, it's it's interesting for me being diagnosed with dementia. It, you know, I'd never experienced racism. I had experienced discrimination as a woman um, and, you know, maybe being short. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it's the first time I experienced what, you know, the late Dr King called that sense of nobodiness. It felt like a social death. Um, you know, I was suddenly excluded from everything and I felt completely stripped of it. People just wanted to label me as demented. Um, and I felt really stripped of, of everything. And if I had taken all of the initial advice I'd been given, um, I would have lost my identity. And instead I've managed to maintain, you know, perhaps some in some 
parts of my life have created a new identity, a new kind of role in life. But, you know, we, we have often that sense of otherness of being inferior to everybody else. Um, it's so profound. People newly diagnosed today still being told to go home and give up and they're all experiencing that sense of otherness and the discrimination and prejudice and, and, and stigma. And we really, really need to work hard to change that. We can do better. We can definitely. Yeah, we can. And we have to. We yeah. absolutely have to. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think even, you know, with this virus that's going on and the isolation that people are going through, maybe they'll look at things a little bit differently. You know, maybe, maybe someone will be kind to them and visit. And maybe people in the dementia arena in space that have kind of figured this out will be able to teach others how to yeah. connect and value one another. Uh, it, it's just such a critical, critical piece uh, to is, humanity yeah. at large. And I think we've gotten so disconnected on so many levels. And I, I always tell people that I think dementia is here to teach us all a lesson. I absolutely agree, Laurie. Yeah. Really brilliant lesson that we, yeah. we are um, much more than just individuals and <clears throat> we are interconnected and we should never, ever give up on our relationships. And I, I see that a yeah. lot uh, yeah. with dementia that people give up. But I, I also found um, on my own journey that there were two sets of people out there that would ask, how is my mom doing? And one group really, really wanted to know. And the second group really, all they wanted was to give me permission to not go see her. Yeah. Because they were so uncomfortable with the conversation. Mm. They didn't know what mm -hmm. to say. And so, you know, we have to get people over that fear of uncomfortableness. You know, we don't know what right. to do either. We're just all adapting. But this this fear and this sense that people feel, we have to we have to somehow calm that down and Yeah, we do. Dementia is not normal aging. It is a new normal for many, many families. It is a new normal, but it's not a consequence specifically of aging. Yeah. Um, last year I was uh, supporting someone to die at home with cancer and in the same community was uh, uh, an aunt of mine with dementia living in an assisted living, um, supported living uh, at the back of the hospital and the difference in the visitors, the friends, the phone calls, the support, the medical support that the person with cancer at home was being given versus no visitors. And, you know, it was a shocking physical example of, you know, people walk away. And they're fearful of people, of the dementia experience. But, you know, I'm like you. I, well, I see dementia as absolutely my third greatest gift in my life, even though it's, you know, one of a very difficult gift. Um, it's given me a clarity, which is pretty ironic, a clarity about life and humanity that I didn't have before, for sure. Yeah, I hear from a lot of people that um, get diagnosed that are that end up being advocates that it's really it's given them purpose on a new level that they didn't yeah. know even existed. 
Yeah, I know Richard Taylor used to say that too. Yeah, and I think that, um, I think we can all learn to walk graciously with this mm -hmm. disease, just like we have heart disease and AIDS and cancer and all the other things. I yep, mean, exactly. You think back when cancer could only be referred to as the C word. It was when I was nursing, where, you know, it was the C word. We used to put our cancer patients in the back wards of the hospital. They didn't get any visitors. People were fearful of catching cancer. Um, so we've come a long, long way with cancer, luckily, um, and we need to do that with dementia. Yeah, and sometimes it's just even having those conversations and reminding people of that. Yeah, yeah you know, exactly. We've been there before and we've triumphed and we will we will again. Yeah. Well, um, I, you know, Kate, I, I can't thank you um, enough for joining me today. This has just been a lovely conversation. And it has. I've really enjoyed it too. Yeah. So now people can get a hold of you. I have info at infodai.org. Correct. And if people want to join the organization, they can go to www.joindai.org, which is a nice, simple um, yeah. website. And then the full website is www.dementiaallianceinternational.org. They could go to your website, Kate. KateSwaffer.com. I think this was a wonderful, insightful conversation. So thank you so much for your time. It's been wonderful. Thanks, Laurie. Really nice to properly meet online too. Yep. Stay safe in your social isolation. Yes, yes. Yeah. And, uh, keep, uh, keep safe and well over there too. Yeah. Thanks, okay. Laurie. Take care. Bye. Hi, this is Suzanne Newman, host of the Answers for Elders podcast and radio show. We are the North Star that guides you through the complicated journey of senior care with trusted experts in money, law, living solutions, and more. So join us on this station, your favorite podcast channel, or just go to AnswersForElders.com. Meet the Wayshowers who will help your journey a lot easier.